Over the years, a number of significant changes have been introduced in professional baseball, each one altering the game in its own unique way. Let's explore five of the biggest rule changes in the sport's history and examine their impact on the game and their place in baseball lore. Today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. It's great to be back with you. Before we get into our topic for today, I just want to say welcome to our new subscribers to the weekly email newsletter. We have Mets Rewind from the show itself. Thanks for joining us. We have Laura C., and then we have Macarena Ferrier, if I'm saying that right, which I hope I am, to the three of you. Thank you for joining this past week. It's great to have you. For those of you who may not have heard yet, we do run a weekly email newsletter that you can access. And if you want to join for free, you get quite a bit. All you have to do is go to the website and sign up. I'll send you a weekly newsletter with this episode. And it contains photos and videos and links so you can get deeper into the details of the episode that we're discussing. You're also going to get access to the free bonus show, This Week in Baseball History. There is a bonus episode that comes out every week just for free email subscribers where I cover the main events that happened in baseball history for the current week that we're in. So if you uh, want to get an extra dose of baseball history in your life, that's a great way to do it. All you got to do is go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. There's a link in the description show notes. So um, you join the community. It would be great to have you. If you want to go a step further and help me grow the show and become a paid subscriber, I'll give you even more. You get the free newsletter. You get the free weekly show. On top of that, you get to see a list of all the upcoming episodes. You get the weekly show a whole day earlier than everybody else if you become a paid subscriber. You get your feedback read in episode. I send you questions every week for the upcoming episode, and you get to give your opinions and your takes, and I will read, hey, this person said this in the episode, so it would be great for you to uh, be able to share your opinions and conjecture that way for the for the diehard baseball fans. It's great. And it only costs about a cup of coffee per month, folks, to join. So please, uh, if you'd like to become a financial supporter of the show, greatly appreciated. You can do it that way too. So look, for today, let's get into our topic. I'm excited to discuss it. Baseball, we know, is a game that's really steeped in tradition. And it's one of the most important aspects of that tradition is our rules. Baseball is a game of rules. And from the early days of the sport to now, Rules have shaped the way baseball is played and enjoyed by millions of fans around the world. So if we look at the early days, we had the Knickerbocker rules, and then we have the more recent introductions of baseball's rule changes like the designated hitter. Each of these changes left a mark on the game of baseball and helped shape it into the product that we have today. So for our episode, we're going to cover the five, in my opinion, biggest rule changes that were made to professional baseball throughout its history. This is my list. You can make your own and start your own show if you have changes. I would love to hear what you think. Let's go ahead and jump into our episode. But first, a word from our sponsor.
Before we jump into our list of the five biggest rule changes in baseball history, I do want to note that this list is in no particular order of importance. I just listed the five overall I think had the biggest impact on the game. We're going to have a chance together as a community to order those. So again, become a subscriber if you haven't already to be able to give your input. Let's go ahead and jump into the first one. Baseball's first biggest rule change in its history was ending a game at nine innings. The early days of baseball were marked by a lack of standardized rules, and games could be played with varying numbers of innings and runs required to win. In 1857, however, the Knickerbocker Baseball Club of New York City introduced a switch from playing from a set number of runs to decide a game to playing to a set number of innings to decide a game. So before 1857, it was common practice for clubs to usually play games until one scored 21 runs. And under the Knickerbocker rules of 1857, games were then played to nine innings instead. Now, this switch helped really make some big changes and move the game forward. First of all, it helped standardize the game, which made it more consistent and fair for all the players and teams because there was an expectation of how long things were going to go for. It also ensured that games would have a more predictable length for the fans, and that would make it easier for them to follow and enjoy the sport and make it a part of their day to come and be spectators for this. Now, additionally, the shift to a set number of innings helped to create a more strategic game as well. If you think about it, teams could no longer really simply focus on just scoring as many runs as possible in the shortest amount of time. Instead, they had to think and play the long game and be careful about their approach to each inning and balance offense and defense as they work to outscore their opponents. So overall, the move from playing to a set number of runs or from a set number of runs, to playing to a set number of innings was a crucial step in the development of modern baseball. So that's our first big rule change that propelled baseball forward into a sport that we more easily recognize as part of the modern game. Big change number two was the elimination of the one-bounce rule. So another significant rule change in baseball's history was the elimination of what was called the one-bounce rule. So what do I mean by that? Until 1864, fielders who played by the New York rules were allowed to catch a player out on one bounce, meaning that they could either catch the ball on the fly or wait until it took a hop before catching it. Now, this rule was mainly in place because baseball gloves had yet to be perfected and optimized, and so catching a line drive with your bare hand could be really dangerous, and it could result in a serious injury. So that update eliminated the, I'm going to catch it on the bounce, and this was due to a lot of reasons, but advances in equipment certainly factored into it's time to make this change. But keep in mind that other leagues, like the official Massachusetts rule, they never had the one-hop regulation that the New York rules did. As a matter of fact, in the Massachusetts rules, their handbook stated, quote, the ball must be caught flying in all cases, end quote. But the New York rules were the ones that were most prevalent in early baseball, um, and that's why we saw that one-hop bounce being used in most clubs where baseball was being played early on. So as gloves became more widespread in the late 1800s, we saw mitts uh, increase in terms of their ability to protect the hand and be able to be used to uh, achieve more defensive prowess for players. 
that's when we start to see the one bounce rule begin to look increasingly outdated in games. And in 1882, the National League officially abolished the one bounce rule that had been so common under those New York regulations. And then the American League followed suit three seasons later in 1885, and they banned the one bounce rule. So this change, it did have a significant impact on the game at the time. It made fielding more challenging, and it required players to develop more advanced techniques for catching and throwing the ball. And if you think about it too, it also helped to increase the importance of pitching because batters could no longer rely on hitting the ball into the ground and hoping for a favorable bounce, right? So this was a big one. And the elimination of the one bounce rule was that, again, a crucial step in the evolution of baseball because it helped create that more challenging and dynamic game that we continue to enjoy now. Biggest change number three was the establishment of a strike zone. So one of the most significant rule changes in baseball's history overall, and it would be unrecognizable to a lot of us today without it, was the establishment of an official strike zone. So the idea of called strikes was first implemented in 1858, because before that, the role of the pitcher was very different from what it is today. Pitchers were required to deliver the ball underhanded and were only allowed to throw the ball straight to the batter without any curve or break. The goal overall was to make a pitch hittable, not to help one's team get an out. And we did a great episode on this just a few weeks ago, in case you might have missed it. We talked about one of the great pitchers of early baseball, James Creighton, and how his pitching style actually caused or led to his own demise. Uh, And he was one of the ones that really turned pitching into a defensive uh, position. And so if you'd like to go check that episode out, I'll include it in the description. This ties directly back into that, where we're talking about a strike zone, turn the pitcher into a weapon for defense. So on top of that, just to take a step back, we saw that uh, the pitcher, again, served a completely different purpose before the strike zone. In addition to being expected to throw a hittable ball, batters were often allowed to ask for high or low pitches, and there was no defined strike zone at all. So umpires at the beginning of this in 1858, when they first started to call strikes, they could call balls or strikes based on their own interpretation of whether a pitch was hittable or not. So again, that's the focus, not about uh, making it harder for the batter. So there was usually a high number of allowed balls and strikes. It wasn't three balls, two strikes, you know, full count or strike three, you're out. We're not there yet, but the strike zone set that standard of having a more consistent area where if the ball's pitched here, it's a strike. And that made it fair for all players. It also increased, again, the importance of pitching because pitchers can now aim for a specific part of the strike zone. They can try to deceive the batter and induce swings and misses. Really changed how the game was played. Now, over time, the strike zone has been refined and it's been adjusted to reflect changes in the game and advances in technology. So, for instance, in 1858, we see the establishment of a strike zone. In 1887, the height of the strike zone was from the batter's shoulders to his knees. That was the update made to the rule book. In 1969, it was changed again, and the strike zone was lowered from the armpits to the knees. So this has been a continuing thing throughout baseball's history. But overall, the establishment of that strike zone, it was a crucial step because it made the position of pitcher much more important. It prioritized the pace of play and it standardized again for all batters what the expectation of what a strike and a ball are. 
Now, before we get into our final two, let's go ahead and take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We're getting into our final two of what I've put together is what I think the five biggest changes in baseball history are. Just to jump back through the list again, we started off by talking about how the game was changed to be played to nine innings instead of to a certain amount of runs. That was the first big update. The second one was the elimination of the one bounce rule, which made it so that fly balls had to be caught in the air instead of being able to get an out once the, if the ball hit once, if there was a caught on a hop, it was still counted as an out. And then we talked about the establishment of a strike zone and how important that was to the progression of baseball. So let's go ahead and go into our final two. This next one is a lot of fun. One of the biggest changes to baseball, number four, the practice or the regulation of removing equipment from the field after inning changes. This sounds wild, but this is actually a big development and something that was quite common up until recently. So let's talk about it. Up until about 1954, it was customary for players to leave their gloves on the field after the end of an inning. Think about that for a second. We're used to seeing players take their gloves with them when they leave the field and go to the dugout when it's time for that inning change. But up until 1954, 1954, folks, like right after World War II, it was customary for players to leave the gloves, just leave them in the field, leave them in the edge of the infield, and go to the dugout. Outfielders would usually drop their gloves right where they stood. Shortstops and second basemen would commonly throw them into the infield grass just off the dirt. And the first and third basemen would usually toss their gloves into foul territory just to get them enough out of the way. And then the pitchers and the catchers usually put their gloves on top of the dugout when they went. But everybody else would just leave them out there in the field. Oakland A's bullpen coach Ed Noddle recounted in an interview about watching players do this when he would visit Scheib Park as a boy. We talked about Scheib Park recently in our team autopsies about the athletics. So in this interview, we had Ed talking about when he would see Philadelphia A's shortstop Eddie Juiced do this, leave his glove in the field. This is what he had to say. Super interesting. Quote, there used to be an art to things like that. And I think it was an art that was appreciated by everybody in the stands. At the end of every inning, you'd look at Juiced. He'd put his glove in the same spot every time. It wasn't just sling it and take off. The gloves then were a lot smaller and flatter, of course, and he would throw it like a Frisbee with great accuracy and style, end quote. The reason I include this quote is because I want to impress upon you the normalcy of this practice up until very recently of players doing this and actually having players have like certain styles to how they would leave their gloves out in the field, like Eddie Juiced here. So you may think at first, this seems harmless, right? This practice of doing this, but it wasn't. And it led to a number of really unusual and even dangerous situations because leaving gloves on the field created safety hazards because players would sometimes trip over or step on the gloves that had been left on the ground. Sometimes you would even see balls that were hit ricochet off of these gloves that were left and create all sorts of chaos, whether it's hitting a player or taking a shot and going, you know, completely off track and allowing for extra bases for the batter. It was like having these extra little obstacles placed in the field. 
caused a lot of problems, and baseball finally decided to do something about it. So again, just to give you uh, an I a, a glimpse into what it was like for games to be played this way, uh, former Red Sox and Yankees manager Ralph Huck stated in an interview once that, quote, it happened an awful lot of times. A batted ball would hit a glove and mess up the game. I've also seen it where a player, especially an infielder, would be running back and step on a glove, and naturally it would throw him off balance, end quote. Another side effect of leaving those gloves on the field was it became fair game for practical jokes by opposing players. This is really interesting. So on the way to the bench, a lot of times some outfielders would pick up an opponent's mitt, maybe put it in their back pocket and take it with them. An infielder would take his counterpart's glove and fling it as far as he could into the outfield. It also became commonplace for players to mess with the glove. So there were common accounts of people stuffing them with glass, rocks, sand, just to be able to mess with the opponent. So we have opposing players, like I said, vandalizing gloves, stealing them, hiding them. And this caused delays in games. It created a chaotic atmosphere. It messed with players having the equipment that they were used to be able to using suddenly being messed with by someone on the opposing team. Now, Ralph Huck, again, former Red Sox and Yankees manager, he again shared in an interview with Sports Illustrated about Yankees shortstop Phil Rizzuto. And Rizzuto would get really upset whenever this happened to him. And this kind of egged on by Huck's own admission. Other players would do it even more to Rizzuto because he would get so upset when it happened. So let me read you his recount. This is what he had to say. Quote, Phil Rizzuto was one they really liked to get. They'd put dead mice in his glove. Rats, frogs, lizards, all kinds of things. That really upset him, end quote. Red Sox coach Ed Yost, who was a member of the Washington Senators team that often did this to Rizzuto, had this to say in an interview, quote, we had some guys on the club that put snakes and things in Phil's glove often, end quote. So this decision to require players to take their gloves off the field with them was a crucial step in creating a more organized and professional game. And thankfully for Phil Rizzuto, it stopped the hazing. And Again, it eliminated delays, it would get rid of safety hazards, and it really came down to being able to just getting those gloves off the field. It was a big step, doesn't seem like a lot, doesn't even seem like something that would have happened to a modern day fan, but yes, this was a common practice. So in 1954, this was uh, eliminated from the game, and this encouraged a more aggressive, exciting style of play, eliminated those unnecessary um, obstacles and um, things that would happen that could change the play of the game based on just ha- leaving your equipment in the field. So again, mind blowing to think about common one that we often saw. So that brings us to our last one, the fifth biggest change to the rules in baseball history. And that is one that we're familiar with because we've seen it unfold in the past few years. And that is the introduction of the universal DH. So in 1973, the American League officially introduced a rule change that allowed teams to use a designated hitter, the DH, in place of the pitcher in the batting order. This meant that instead of the pitcher having to bat, a designated hitter could be used to hit for him. Now, this rule change was seen as controversial at the time, and it fundamentally changed the way the game was played. So the first question that should come to mind is, why did the American League take this step in 1973? 
to do this and remove the pitcher from the batting order. Well, baseball had actually played around with this rule for decades before they made this decision. So in 1941, it was tried in both the National League and the American League, but both leagues decided not to officially implement the idea. The idea was revived in the 1960s, when pitching really was dominating the game during that decade. To give you an example of that, American League batters in the 1960s only had a 230 batting average. Uh, in 1968, that was the lowest. That same year, Carl Yastrzemski led the league with a 301 average. That was the high point. That's how uh, low batting averages got in the 60s. There were only six batters who batted 300 or better in both major leagues during this time. So it became increasingly clear that fans liked to come to the park. They liked to see good hitting more than good pitching. So an effort to get fans back into the stands, especially during this offensive drought, the MLB allowed its AAA teams, its farm clubs, to start using the DH to revive this experiment to see, is this going to work? Is it going to make a difference? Is it going to move the needle in terms of offensive production? So in 1969, this was done for all AAA teams. Kind of, let's try it out. And the experiment showed success. It boosted fan interest, but the American and National Leagues could not agree on the implementation of it at the MLB uh, level. So the American League went ahead and voted in favor of the rule change, while the National League voted against it. So the introduction of the DH had several impacts on the American League once it was instituted in 73. So first of all, and I would say most importantly, it allowed pitchers to focus on pitching instead of having to divide their attention between pitching and hitting. And this meant that pitchers could throw more innings, they could stay in games for longer, and they could you know, allow their managers to be more strategic in how they wanted to be able to approach the offensive side of the game, uh, including pitching switches. That's more on the defensive side, but it added a new layer of strategy by uh, adding the DH. Second, it increased the amount of offense in the game, and this is the really the reason why the decision was made by the American League to do this. Pitchers typically are not strong hitters, and replacing them with a DH often meant that teams could field a stronger batting lineup. So this leads to more runs being scored. This leads to more exciting games. It leads to more fan interest. And I can feel my National League fans, some of you might be just like at the, at, the, at the audio right now because there are still purists that believe pitchers should be two-way players. They should be in the batting order. It allows for certain batters because there are certain players who did succeed at the plate. Uh, I would agree with the fact, though, it was the exception, not the rule, when pitchers were uh, valuable in the batting order. But... The American League saw it as a whole as being something that would increase the production that fans cared about. So we also saw that the DH implementation further widened a gap that had been there for a long time. And that was the division between the American League and National Leagues because the National League didn't adopt the DH rule in 73. So now we have a situation where if you are a pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles, and you sign with the Atlanta Braves, all of a sudden you're going to be expected to bat, to go to the plate. And you may have had no experience offensively in professional baseball up until that point. So we have an adjustment issue of players switching between leagues. And then on top of that, when we had interleague play introduced, we had teams struggling with strategic 
changes to their lineup. So you, if you're a National League team playing in an American League park, all of a sudden you would have to find some offensively challenged person to stick in at the DH or, you know, uh, it's the inverse. If you're an American League team in a National League park, all of a sudden your pitcher has to hit. And so it became a challenge. It added different uh, difficulties based on this rift, this growing rift that happened over the introduction of the DH. So why did the National League choose not to adopt the designated hitter rule after the American League did? What was that delay all about? Well, one of the major reasons cited after the introduction of the DH rule in 1973 was that the National League held back because they believed that they had a reputation as a more pure or traditional league than the American League and that their fans and their owners felt that adopting the DH rule would make the league less distinctive and less appealing to fans who really valued that traditional style of play. Now, additionally, that was the main reason, but there was also a secondary reason, and there was a lot of concern that adopting the DH rule would lead to higher player salaries because teams would need to pay more to add another skilled hitter onto their roster to fill that DH slot. So that could create financial disparities between teams. So that's another reason why the National League decided to not make that change. But as we know, time rolls on, and in 2022, the Universal DH was introduced, and that finally restored some competitive balance between the American League and the National League. So under this new rule, it's not a pure, the DH is in here. Pitchers can still hit under this 2022 update. Uh, in a sense, they can still hit. Let me explain. We call it the Shohei Otani rule, obviously, because he is the premier two-way player right now. So a player can hit in the order as long as they are substituted in at the DH slot. So again, this provides an opportunity where if you do have a pitcher who's talented and say you're in a pinch hit situation like Otani, you've got him sitting, it wasn't his day to play, you can insert him into the batting order. He just has to fill that DH slot. And of course, once he's taken out, you know, after the order, if uh, you wanted him to pitch, that's not an option because you inserted him there. So it is a change. It does allow for pitchers to be able to participate if they're offensively skilled. But on the other side, it does make sure that the regular starting pitcher or whoever the pitcher in the lineup is at the time is not going to be in the batting order. So we saw the effects of this rule change immediately. National League teams were scrambling at uh, the onset of 2022 to find pure hitters that they could place in this new slot. And all of a sudden, they had to balance hitting power. Uh, and how do you do that? And because of that, it started to level out the game between the leagues because now you have that offensive uh, shift occurring between teams in the American League and the National League. You also see on the pitching side, players don't need to have that two-way talent anymore to be top prospects, to be courted by teams in the National League. We also see that intentional walks late in games to get to the pitcher isn't going to be an option anymore in National League games. So this is going to lead to new strategies. It's going to cause baseball to have to evolve again. And folks, that's baseball, at least to me. It's not that surface level conjecture I hear sometimes on social media or even like when you've got some of those talking heads on ESPN that, oh, baseball is too traditional. It's a slave to its long past. No, I say boo to that. Baseball has always been and will continue to be a continuously evolving sport. And I, for one, think baseball's progressive roots 
and continuing willingness to reinvent itself is a strength, not a weakness, because it means that we can continue to pivot and update the game to fit new generations in the future. And I think personally, that is a good thing. Folks, thanks for tuning in for another episode. It has been great to have you. Remember, if you haven't already, sign up for the weekly email newsletter. It'll be great to have you for that bonus episode that comes out every week. And always remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. See you next time.